One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 42. English Justice and Anglo Normal Ireland. Now, before we launch into this week's episode, I need to share my excitement. So, very recently, I got to go to visit Westminster Hall at the House of Parliament. Now, look, any of you able to make the trip or planning to come to London, you just need to make sure you find a way to get into that place. Westminster Hall has mainly been used as a centre of justice from 1097 when it was built by William Rufus until 1882 when the High Court of Justice finally moved away. The sense of history there is just quite stunning. So I stood on the spot where Charles I stood before his trial, for example. The thing is, there are plenty of people bustling through the vast space, so it looks a bit like it must have looked hundreds of years ago in the 14th century, or at least it sounds like that, a hubbub of people talking. And at the 14th century, of course, it acquired the roof that it has now. You really get a great sense of history of the place when you go. So there you go. Okay, so this week we've got two main subjects, English justice and Anglo-Norman Ireland, or the start of it. I'm going to start with Ireland. The history of Anglo-Irish relationships, of course, is not happy. And it all starts in Henry's reign. Henry's policy in Ireland was in all probability not one of conscious territorial expansion, but in the long term, it should probably be considered a failure, which ended up in a lot of grief and trouble. So let's go back a bit before we start. Ireland in the 12th century was a very different society to England. Its political tradition was tribal, a Celtic tradition of kingship and fealty, where loyalty was still owed to the tribal leader rather than the land-based feudal relationships in England. Seven kings ruled over seven kingdoms, with many underkings beneath them. And in turn, these seven kings owed a nominal allegiance to one of them, who was called the High King, a position similar to the Bretwalder of early Anglo-Saxon England. So just like the Bretwalder, the position of High King wasn't much more than an honorary position. They'd not managed to impose one single central authority. And one reason for all of that was that kings shared their power in Ireland with two other institutions, the Church and the Brehon. The Brian were the interpreters of Irish law, a subtle collection of customary law. Unlike England, the Irish kings had no power to create the law. It was the Brian who interpreted it. Brian law sounds like a thoroughly interesting topic I'd like to know more about. But look, if I start messing around with Irish history as well as English, I could well die of old age before I finish all of this. As it is, I'm going to be dribbling an incontinent before I get to the War of the Roses. Anyway, onward. The other institution they shared power with was the church. It was much more independent than the church in England, and all aspects of religious life were controlled by the abbots. Whereas in England, it was pretty clear that, whatever the theory might be, it was the king who decided who got what job. And so together, this meant, again, that the Irish kings lacked the support of the church and the authority of a lawgiver that had allowed the English kings to combine England into one kingdom. The Celtic church during the Dark Ages had been a shining light of civilization and Christianity, but by the 12th century, the lustre had well and truly been rubbed off. It had become a bit of an anachronism, an oddity. The papacy was not happy about the practices of the Irish church and was seriously out of kilter with Roman practice. 
there were even some areas within Ireland, namely the Norse towns like Dublin, that looked to England for guidance, aware that they were more in line with common practice. So indeed, the papacy itself was keen for the much more orthodox England to bring Ireland back into line. This even led, in 1155, to the Pope actually making this really explicit. The ball, known as the Lauda Bilita, gave Henry II the right to take control over Ireland and force reform of the church there. But at this particular time, Henry had other things on his mind. Pecking over the throne, suppressing the barons, keeping the French happy, all the normal pastimes of the average Angevin monarch. So we put Ireland a bit further down his to-do list. But it wasn't just the papacy trying to enforce change in Ireland. Within Ireland itself, there were two camps. Reformers who looked outside Ireland for their inspiration and wanted to follow the European way of doing things, and those supporting the status quo and resisting this change. And now before I go on to help with the next bits, by the way, there's a map on the website, thehistoryofengland.com. Thanks, Chris. It'll give you an idea of where all the main kingdoms are. But for those of you who are too idle to go to the website, despite the cornucopia of joy and delight you'll find there, here's how it is. In the southwest we have Munster, in the west we have Connaught, in the north we have Ulster, and some other less powerful kingdoms, such as Meath. And then in the east you have Leinster. Now, you'll know from earlier podcasts that Ireland had been invaded by the Scandinavians. The net result were a series of towns with very strong Scandinavian influences, Dublin and Wexford in Leinster, and Waterford, Cork and Limerick in Munster. OK, do you have a mental map in your minds? And then the last thing before I go on is that, apologies to anybody listening who happens to be Irish or know how to pronounce Irish words, uh, I'm going to butcher them. And in fact, so much so that I'm going to relentlessly use the English forms of the Irish words. I formally apologise, but, you know, if I didn't do that, it would be a bloodbath. So this internal struggle saw the King of Connaught in West Ireland, Rory O'Connor, pitted against Dermot McMurrah, the King of Leinster in the East. It all started well for Dermot, supported by the Roman Church, and allied to the King of Tyrone in the North. But when his ally died in 1156, it all went downhill, and the forces of tradition, in the form of Rory O'Connor of Connaught, gained ground. So in 1166, Rory won the high kingship over Dermot, prepared his ground, and then marched on Dermot to settle the issue by force. Dermot fled to look for help elsewhere. And so that's why Dermot appeared at Henry's court in Aquitaine in 1166. He asked Henry for help. Henry, would you come over with a big army to sort the bullies out, please? Or even better, could you just give me the big army and you stay where you are and I'll go and deal with it? Henry, though, was still occupied. We're talking 1166. Lots of little forest fires all over the place. Beckett giving him a pain all that sort of thing. So the thought of getting embroiled in a war in Ireland was not a compelling proposition. It's worth pointing out that this is the second time that Henry turned his back on the opportunity to invade Ireland, and this is surely not the behaviour of a conqueror desperate for more land and glory. But he wasn't so disinterested as to do nothing. So Dermot didn't go away empty-handed. Henry gave Dermot a hunting licence, essentially, the right to recruit soldiers within his lands, if he could find anyone to join him. Henry probably went to bed that night feeling smug. He still looked like Mr Nice, helpful guy, without causing himself any work or trouble. I'm sure my grandmother told me that shortcuts make long delays, and so it will prove here. He took a shortcut and ended up giving Ireland and England a long road to travel. So, armed with his bit of paper, Dermot took himself off to South Wales to find his men. There were a number of reasons why he chose South Wales. Firstly, they were marcher lands, and therefore stuffed full of heavily armed men with too much testosterone. 
Secondly, the Irish and the Norman March Lords had links and some history. They knew each other. And then, for another reason, times had been hard for the Norman Marches. At that time, Henry had messed up his invasion in 1165 in Wales, and since then the Welsh princes had been pretty much in control, which meant that no Welsh land was being taken over by the Normans at the moment which meant that South Wales was stuffed full of heavily armed men with too much testosterone, feeling grumpy and with not enough land. This is a good combination if you're looking to recruit men for a major land war in South East Ireland. Despite this, Dermot struggled to find his Norman warriors. He found a few, presumably with offers of gold and glory, but his first landings in Leinster in 1169 was at the head of a few hundred knights, led by a few marcher lords. But Dermot's big break came when he decided to sell his daughter and his inheritance. With this particular chip in his back pocket, as it were, he met up with Richard Fitzgilbert, the head of the Clare family. His pitch to Richard was to take his daughter's hand in marriage, and with it the right to the kingship of Leinster when Dermot died. Now Richard Fitzgilbert was the head of the Clare family. The Clare family had been the biggest, most powerful family in the Welsh marches, Earl of Pembroke and Earl of Strigoi. It's the last title, by the way, that earned him his nickname, Richard Strongbow. I have to confess being slightly disappointed when I learnt about this recently. I'd imagine something much more action-packed. Richard Strongbow is an extremely cool name, but it turns out just to be a mistake of not being able to pronounce a French word. But never mind. The Clares, though, had fallen on hard times on account of the fact that they picked the wrong horse in the Anarchy High Hurdles. They chose Stephen, and as you'll remember, the Welsh marches are the one area that Miltilda and her supporters really did dominate. So he found himself in hot water, and also not in good odour when Matilda's son took the throne. So it was a slightly threadbare and desperate Strongbow that met the slightly threadbare and desperate Dermot, and they agreed to pull their desperation. The deal was that Strongbow would indeed come and help, as long as he could marry Dermot's daughter and become his heir to Leinster. And so... On the 23rd of August, 1170, Strongbow landed at Waterford with 200 knights and a 1,000 men-at-arms, and the Angevin invasion of Ireland was officially launched. These are small numbers of men, but as events were to prove, Norman military tactics and equipment were as superior to Irish arms as they had been to Anglo-Saxon. The use of a combined force of skirmishing archers, disciplined infantry and heavy cavalry and the use of the modern bailey as a base was just too much for the Irish forces to deal with. Together, Dermot and Strongbow attacked Dublin in 1170, and despite being heavily outnumbered, they drove off the High King's army and captured the place. Henry, meanwhile, was beginning to panic. When he'd given his permission to Dermot, he'd probably imagined some threadbare landless household knights. He'd not imagined a threadbare magnate of the realm getting involved. He slapped an embargo on supplying Ireland, and demanded the return of all his subjects to England. But clearly this wasn't going to happen. But meanwhile, though, Strongbow was in trouble. Dermot died in May 1171. Now, OK, he'd passed his daughter to Strongbow and made Strongbow his heir, but unfortunately they were in Ireland, not in England, and these things didn't make Strongbow the King of Leinster in the eyes of Irish law. Irish law said it was Dermot's son, Donal, that should be king. So Richard Clare and his tiny band was besieged in Dublin by hordes of Irish warriors led by Rory O'Connor, the High King. In desperation, they sallied out from Dublin in a do-or-die attack. The attack turned out to be mainly do, as the High King's army was routed, and Strongbow could finally claim a level of firm control of his Irish lands, achieved at the point of his sword in the traditional Norman manner. 
Henry was over the Irish Sea and into Ireland faster than you could say Jack Robinson. There are competing schools of thought as to why Henry suddenly appeared on the coast of Ireland with an impressively large army. One of them says that he'd long wanted to have a hack at Ireland. The other, that this is pure opportunism. I don't think it's possible to know for sure, but for me, Henry had demonstrated that his interest in Ireland at best came a long way down the list of priorities. I think it had much more to do with reacting to a situation that had occurred. And there were many reasons why going to Ireland was a good idea for him. It may well be that Rory O'Connor, after his defeat, actually asked for Henry's intervention. This is what some of the chronicles say. But also, Beckett had recently been murdered in his cathedral, and it was handy for Henry to be out of the country at the time. Plus, of course, his intervention in Ireland was going to make the Pope happy, bringing the light of Roman practices to, in the eyes of the Roman Church at least, the almost heathen. But probably mainly because once a major baron like Strongbow had established a base in Ireland, Henry just couldn't afford for him to be independent. I mean, good Lord, it might end up like the King of France and William the Conqueror, and we all know what a nightmare that turned out to be. At very least, the Welsh marcher lords would have an independent base, making them even more difficult to manage. So Henry came in force, and he demanded the submission and fealty, not just of Strongbow, but also from all the Irish lords. Many of the Irish kings did just that. Rory O'Connor and the O'Neills of the North accepted. Earl Richard was to hold most of Leinster for the service of a hundred knights. The king took plenty of domain land and the Norse towns of Dublin, Wexford and Waterford, establishing boroughs there with the same rights as in Bristol. He also organised a synod at Cashel. The importance of this event is somewhat debated, but at the very least it marked a step in the path of Ireland's adoption of the reforms that had been going on elsewhere in the church. And then finally, Henry made Hugh de Lacey justicia of all Ireland, with the county of Meath as his own earldom. Then he heard that a papal legate had appeared in England to hear how sorry he was for Beckett's death, so he hurried back over. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A few years later, as the violence grew, in 1175, Rory O'Connor decided he needed to be part of this, and he met with Henry in Windsor. In the resulting Treaty of Windsor, Henry's aim was to put an end to the violence, to create a clear partition between the Anglo-Norman areas of Leinster and Meath and the rest of Ireland, which would be ruled by Rory O'Connor. The relationship between them is subtle. Rory was not asked to do homage to Henry. He was asked to give his fealty. So this is a client relationship, not a feudal one. Henry is recognised as an overlord, not as an owner of the land. Basically, Henry wanted to resolve the situation in Ireland as economically and efficiently as possible. He wasn't interested in empire building. But unfortunately, the tools he wanted to use were not strong enough for the job. Hugh de Lacey's justicia didn't have enough power to keep the Norman adventurers in check, and nor did Rory O'Connor. So in 1177, Raymond Le Gros attacked Munster, and as a consequence, a series of Anglo-Norman lordships were established there. Meanwhile, John de Courcy did the same in East Ulster, building a castle at Carrickfergus. 
In the face of this, Henry decided to try another track and turned to his family, making John the Lord of All Ireland in 1185. That, as we shall see, was to demonstrate his youngest son's personal qualities. The thing about Henry and Ireland, I guess, is that he at once allowed Normans to invade and then stopped them from finishing what they started. Nor was he prepared to do the job properly himself, so the result was a partitioned country which was therefore to be divided for many centuries with competing claims and authority. Unknowingly, Henry allowed a process to start that would cause, you know, a spot of bother over the years. Now, one of the things you like to do in a podcast is move smoothly from one topic to another to keep the narrative seamless, to take your listeners to different worlds so seamlessly that they never even feel the train leaving the station. Well, this week I've completely failed to do that, and maybe many others, because I can think of no link whatsoever between Ireland and the English justice system. So look, I'm just going to talk about English justice system now, OK? Henry had a tidy mind, and he liked things to be tidy and well-ordered. And one of the things that really bugged his tidy mind was the system of justice in England. Reform of the judicial system is a major achievement of Henry's and one of those major themes, the development of the system of English common law, that are beginning to emerge at this time. I can't remember if I've explained this under Henry I, so apologies if this is a bit of a repeat. But the phrase common law always used to confuse me. I mean, what exactly do we mean by common? Do we mean it doesn't have very good manners, it's a bit vulgar, or that it's a bit ordinary? So now I finally get it. In medieval England, there is, of course, more than one law. There's the old law of the Anglo-Saxon kings of Wessex, descended from the law codes of Ena, and so on. Then there's the Dane law, where they do things differently. And then, overlaid over all of this, there's feudal law, as exercised by the barons and the nobility. Confusing, or what? Henry really doesn't like this. It's a mugger's buddle. It was slow. It was confusing. So the 12th century sees the invention of a law that is common to all regions in England. It's the same everywhere. So there you go. Common law. By the way, when we say that common law was common to everybody, remember we don't actually mean everyone. What we mean is that it's common to all free men. Villains, cottagers, all that type don't get access to any of this at all. They have to go through their manorial court and that's it. Meanwhile, Henry also reckoned that there were too many criminals who didn't get caught. Incidentally, he also thought there were too many people who didn't pay the fines they should pay into the royal coffers, and this really, really upset him. So Henry made an enormous number of changes to the way justice was administered. He didn't write loads of laws. This is about the process of law. He made these changes by things called assizes. These assizes were instructions given to his royal judges and courts, And since they didn't change the law itself, just the process of administering the law, he could simply get on with it and do it without too much debate, although he did consult with his barons. And I should insert a note here about the process of consultation. We've got no concept of Parliament yet whatsoever. Now I've been reading ahead, and it's very interesting how the historians who concentrate on post-Angevin Plantagenets, i.e. after King John, suddenly start talking about Parliament. Well, we'll come to all of that later, but if the king in Anglo-Saxon, Norman and Angevin days wanted to change customs or raise an unusual tax not covered by his feudal rights, it was customary to consult with his great men, as referred to in the Wittengamot in Anglo-Saxon times and the Magnum Concilium thereafter. There's nothing written down, but like so many things in early medieval times, it's definitely understood that this is the way it is. It's a bit like the principle of election to kingship principle is still there in the background that, as in early Anglo-Saxon times, the king is elected from the royal family by his great men. 
It's frequently ignored. Rufus uh, completely ignored it, for example, but it is still there. It's this tradition that will lead to stuff like Magna Carta and a constitutional monarchy. The documents from two big assizes survived from the reign, the Assize of Clarendon in 1166 and the Assize of Northampton in 1176. And let me tell you, friends, these are big dates in English legal history. Write them down in your notebook, talk about them to your friends, spread the word, 1166 and 1176. We could spend several episodes on Henry's legal developments, but I think you begin to find it a bit dull, so I won't do that. But the big things are these. First of all, Henry really develops the idea of his grandfather that what you need is a set of royal judges who travel around the countryside administering royal justice. And this is the means by which common law gets developed. A set of people who go all over the country and implement the same law, rather than local people just doing their own thing. This for Henry is nice and neat. It also means that more and more justice comes to be administered through him rather than through the nobility, which means he can control its quality and collect its profits. These itinerant justices are called justices in air, the word air coming from the old French verb for travel. From 1166, these itinerant justices start to become a regular part of the English administrative landscape. Secondly, this group of royal professional judges also begins to define another feature of English common law, i.e. the reliance on case law and precedence. If the principle is that it's unfair to treat similar facts differently on different occasions, i.e. you're having a common law system, then it becomes essential to make the same decisions in one case as you've made in previous cases. So now we've got a group of people who are keeping records so we can keep track and look at all this case law as it builds up. Which brings us to another seminal document, the Treatise on the Laws and Customs of the Kingdom of England, written by the Chief Justiciar of England, Ranulph Glanville. It's an example of how the process of law is being captured and recorded so that it can be applied in the same way all over the country. And now there's also a central location where these justices meet together in Westminster so that we can now begin to refer to the common bench. So we're back to Westminster Hall, neatly, I thought. When the king's in the country, they sit with him and are therefore the king's bench. But justice now goes on without the king and this continuity is a major step forward. So, third big thing, listen to this quote from the Assize of Clarendon, 1166. The said King Henry, by the counsel of all his barons, has decreed to keep the peace and maintain justice, that inquiry be made throughout every shire and hundred, from twelve of the more lawful men of the hundred, put on oath to speak truly, whether there be, in their hundred or vil, any man accused or publicly suspected of being a robber, murderer or thief since the Lord King became King and let the justices make this inquiry in their presence and the sheriffs in their presence so here then da 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 is the first absolutely explicit description of the jury now I know there was a reference to 12 sworn men in Ethelred's reign that we noted but here's the first clear reference as a standard instrument of royal justice now, it's not the same kind of jury that we'd recognise today, so the medieval jury is there to tell the truth about something it knows, not to give a verdict based on a whole load of evidence that it's listening to. But this really early introduction of the jury, far earlier than anywhere else, is part of the reason why it survives today. In France, where jurors appear later, the system dissolves into simply being a witness interrogated individually by a judge, sometimes in secret, 
and a much more authoritarian, centralised process. In 12th century England, judges are reluctant to do any more than declare the law rather than interpret it. So juries built up a long tradition before the approach could be challenged by central government. So the jury is now here to stay, a standard part of the English legal system, constantly and boringly quoted by the English as one of their fundamental liberties. Also, the medieval jury represents the community in a much more meaningful way in the medieval times. And this is a general point that's worth expanding a bit, I think. When we look back at justice in the Middle Ages, it doesn't look like a great system, to be honest. All that stuff about trial by ordeal and combat and so on looks so horribly arbitrary. There's no police force, so how does anyone get caught anyway? That sort of thing, you know. And it's true. I much prefer our current system, thanks very much. But just remember that we're talking about a really small population with lots of really small communities. People really knew who was doing what. People knew everybody. An awful lot of justice is carried out summarily. William's caught nicking Gilbert's sheep, so everyone gets together, finds Gilbert, and they string him up. No need to worry the king about it. The other thing Henry wanted to get sorted was speed. Justice, except the summary stuff, was slow. One way of sorting this was to get more people to use royal justice. And one way of doing this was to make royal justice quicker. What Henry does is to use the royal writ to do this. He invents a whole load of new ones for very specific purposes. So if you need a bit of legal action, all you do is buy the appropriate writ from the king. And then the process goes forward. So for example, the writ of novel decisin was how you could try to get land back that you'd been unlawfully thrown off. Mort d'Ancester was a writ that gave you possession of the land your father had held before. Now this system was much faster. It was a clear process. There were no delays or excuses allowed. But it will have unfortunate consequences, because it's very rigid. If you choose a particular approach and you get it right, well that's great, it goes ahead. But if you choose the wrong procedure, then you can't change the procedure. That's not a massive problem at the moment, since the king can simply invent new procedures for new circumstances. But after the 13th century, the king's powers to do this are curtailed by the people. So this rather sets things in stone until the reforms of the 19th century. But for the moment, the execution of justice becomes much quicker. A couple of other changes from all of this are worth noting. English land law at this time begins to insist that land holdings were indivisible, except amongst heiresses, and that descent should therefore be to the eldest son, so primogeniture really begins to get embedded. And secondly, courts began to favour the right to sell or donate land as freely as the holder liked. Now, the rule of primogeniture meant that the younger sons of nobles had to make their own way in the world, through professions, commerce or industry. And the freedom of the land market allowed people to trade up or down, and particularly for successful merchants to buy their way into the landed nobility. Now, I know we tend to still mock the English for being class-ridden, but let me tell you that for much of modern history, England has had a major advantage of being unusually mobile and uncast-bound as a society. And indeed, this would be one of the big reasons why England goes into the Industrial Revolution before everyone else. Both these laws make a big contribution to this. The impact of all Henry's changes were revolutionary. He didn't probably intend to be revolutionary. He probably wasn't thinking forward. He simply wanted to make the whole thing more efficient and get more cash in. But together, they set the course of the English legal system, certainly until the 19th century, with many of those elements that he set up still around. So that brings us to the end of podcast number 42. I do need to warn you all that there is a dark cloud ahead, the dark cloud called episode limits. 
it transpires that TypePad only give you 50 posts, which means that soon episode 1 would no longer be available through iTunes. Now that seems to defeat the whole point of a continuous series. So I've consulted the Oracle, namely Mike Duncan, and he has very kindly told me where to go. That is to say that he's told me how to deal with the podcast feed problem, I mean. So I just have to hope that I don't mess it up technically, but frankly, I wouldn't put your house on this. So if everything suddenly goes dark and disappears, you'll know what has happened. OK, so this is goodbye for now until next week. Or who knows, maybe it's goodbye forever. But either way, goodbye and have a great week or life, whatever.